Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and if this be some help to you, page 810 in the church Bibles. Page 810, and while you're turning there, just a couple of things. One, if you're wondering why we're here this morning in these particular verses, is because October of last year, we began working through 1 Corinthians. We started in chapter 1, verse 1, and took a few breaks here and there. And here we are this morning uh, in these verses, 25 through 35, which will be a part 1 and a part 2. And I think as we read and begin to take it in, we'll, we'll see why. And then secondly, when we're done, if you have a question about what we've said or sung or read this morning, I would be always happy to try to answer that question for you. So let's hear the word of the Lord, right? Verse 25. Now about virgins. Now can you imagine me reading those three words sometime Tuesday or Wednesday this past week? <laughs> now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, key verse, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Verse 29, what I mean, brothers, key verse, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. Key verse. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. And finally, verse 35, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you might live in a right way, in undivided devotion to the Lord. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's bow together, please. Well, Father, as we prepare to study the Bible together, we so desperately need to hear your voice far beyond the voice of a mere man. And so because of that, we are totally dependent on you to make this moment matter for you and for your people. Take our eyes off everyone else except you and clear our minds from everything else except your word. And so to that end, please, Holy Spirit, help us to see where the path of truth lies and give to us lives that are eager to travel that path. Grant us a very strong appetite for spiritual food and diminish our appetite for the things that are passing away. Put down our rebellion so that we would grow in humility and in love and in thankfulness and please God, obedience to you. We need forgiveness. And so we would ask for that now for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we say here frequently that if we don't live as the Apostle Paul would live, then we're not thinking as the Apostle Paul would think. 
And no, male, no more does this seem right and true as in these verses that have been read this morning. Because of all the choices a man or a woman may make in their life, surely at the top of the list is the whole decision of whether we should marry. And if we decide that we should marry, then who it is that we would like to marry. And it's within that framework that these verses before us this morning in chapter 7 is reserved. So it's this idea of deciding to marry or deciding not to marry, which is quite practical as you think of those things because both marriage and singleness, when it's done right, has the potential for some of the most joyous moments a man or a woman can know. And marriage and singleness, if done wrong, has the potential for some of the greatest sorrows a man or a woman may know. Consequently, so many people enter into marriage naively thinking that only in marriage will all their problems be solved and only in marriage will will true fulfillment be found. But as wonderful as marriage can be, marriage will not solve the problem of loneliness, not completely. Marriage will not remove the problem of sexual temptation. Marriage will not satisfy our deepest emotional needs. And certainly marriage will not eliminate life's difficulties because as we'll soon see, it will actually increase life's difficulties. C.S. Lewis would write, History, the long terrible story of humanity trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. Which is why we learned last time, and you might remember this, that whatever our station in life is and whatever our situation in life is, we can stay put and we can be content as we trust Christ and not other people. And as we trust Christ's providence so that we wouldn't try to reach for a particular kind of circumstances to meet our deepest needs or if you would reach for a certain kind of circumstance to put down our most ferocious temptations. And so I don't think I'm too far off when I say that what was written here in in God's Word in chapter 7 does not, by and large, equate with many of the marriage models, Christian or not, that we've grown accustomed to hearing from in the past, say, 30 years or so. Models which often end with the thing saying, and they lived happily ever after, or if you trust us, you can live happily ever after. And I don't think that's very helpful. And as a man who's been married for 24 years, I don't think that's very honest. Now, you're sensible people. I want you to think with me. The Bible, by and large, says very little about marriage. And then when we finally get to a whole chapter, the the only chapter in the whole of the Bible that speaks about marriage directly, one whole chapter, it doesn't quite sound like we would either want to hear and it doesn't quite sound what we might, would say, expect to hear. For example, if your Bible is open, look at verse 28, the last sentence. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Now, as you work through this chapter in these past few weeks, and as I've been working through and frankly, I'm beginning to appreciate this chapter more and more. A long time ago, way long time ago, I had a set of lines of living that I began to go down and and they were so highly questioned. But the longer I'm in the Bible, the longer I'm in pastoral ministry, the longer I've been married, I begin to see that I wasn't that far off. It wasn't perfect, but I wasn't that far off. 
So if you ask me, what is the central theme of this chapter uh, that points to, if you would, the whole thing? Where is the aha moment that makes this chapter understandable? I want you to listen carefully because I'm going to tell you what it is. It's actually verse 35. Because Paul's concern is about both the married and the single in Christ would know an undivided devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That Christ be first and Christ be central for the single or for the married. Complete devotion to Jesus first, all stages of life, all ages of life. Jesus, 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 and everything. Singleness, yes. Marriage, yes. And even family. Jesus, 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 for the sake of the gospel. In other words, the worst thing a single person can do and the worst thing a married person can do and the worst thing a family can do is to live in such a way as if they are what matters most in the universe. That's a dead-end street. And that's why Paul says what he says, which might sound either so strange to us or sterile or unromantic or even bitter. So if you're a cultural Christian or if you're just a religious person... You might have trouble with this. I mean, because where's the flowers and where's the candy and where's the candles? I, I was reading last, three weeks ago about, in the, in the context of study, and, and the person, it was a lady telling me I had needed to have more candles in my bedroom. And, and like, if you want me to have that more with candles, I'll burn the house down. So, you know, so where's the weekend getaways? Where's the stuff about my needs? And where's this quality of life stuff? And if we're going to be happy, then we need like total circumstances, all A plus, and then we can be happy. Uh, where's all that stuff? Where's the he first talk and the she's first talk? Where is it? Now, certainly some of those things may have a place if you can afford them. Because frankly, much of the world cannot. And the Bible was written for the whole world and not just America. So they might have a place, but certainly not the place. They might be good, but they are certainly not the best. So that's why Paul would say what he says in verse 35b. This is the explosive power of the right affection for the single or the married. Live in a right way. Okay, Paul, what is that right way? Because we want to live the right way. Well, here it is. An undivided devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. So in order for us to understand what this means and why it matters, we're going to have to work through some points. We're going to spend most of our time on the first two points and just a few minutes on the last point because there's a part two and so we won't complete that last point completely. So if you have a worship folder, you'll see in the back there the word context and the idea is there is what is the context of this teaching? Now here's the idea. What is Paul's context, not in the whole letter, but in this chapter? Those key verses, 26 and 29 and 35. What is he trying to say? What is the context? And by the way, before we begin, you'll see verse 25 when he says, Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. When Paul says that, he's not saying that his instruction is not authoritative instruction. But what he is saying is that Jesus never spoke directly on this matter so that Paul could quote from Jesus. And because of this... Because Paul can't quote for Jesus, as an apostle, he can write and speak for Jesus. And so that's what he does. In other words, Paul's commands are God's commands, and Paul's advice are God's advice. So there are three phrases, then, which explain 
to us, why he says what he says, and again, which might not sound uh, good in our day, because our context right now does not lend itself to have a real uh, heart-deep understanding of what Paul is saying and why he's saying it. So the first phrase is verse 26, and you'll see the phrase, this or the present crisis, the present crisis. And the word that Paul uses there is a very intense word. It's anake in the Greek, and it means a very difficult circumstance or some kind of calamity. Now, this is the same word that Jesus used in Luke chapter 21, verse 23, when he's describing what the features would be like at the end of the age. And he says this, how dreadful it will be in those days for a pregnant woman and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land, a megale anake, a mega crisis. And so Paul writes, there is a violent, difficult, calamitous situation in their context. And so you want to know immediately, okay, well, what is it? Well, if you look at your Bible, we can't be exactly sure because he doesn't exactly say. We do know that his initial readers then would automatically know because if they didn't know, he would have taken time to explain it, but he doesn't. Therefore, whatever the crisis was, it was clear to them, ultimately unimportant to us because if it was essential, if it helped us understand the text, then God by his spirit surely would have revealed it. And what this should tell us then, and this is why I say all that, what it tells us is there's a principle that's being established that's, that's forever. And that principle is un- unencumbered by whatever the crisis was. In other words, we can't skip this. Because what Paul is doing, he's establishing a Christian line of thinking and the choice between singleness and marriage and he's using this crisis as a background. So it would be just a couple of years after, excuse me, it would be two years before Paul wrote this letter that Priscilla and Aquila would arrive in Corinth. And Priscilla and Aquila were the first couple that Paul met. And the reason why they were in Corinth was because there was a Roman edict that kicked all Jewish people out of Rome. And so Priscilla and Aquila had to go to to Corinth. Rome had trouble distinguishing the difference between Judaism and Christianity. So they just took the whole lot of them and asked them to leave. It was also only 14 or 15 years after Paul would pen this letter that Jerusalem was completely destroyed by Rome. And Paul himself was on the receiving end in some of the most horrific physical beatdowns simply because of his gospel proclamations and his gospel loyalties. So it could well be that Paul and his inner man had this kind of inner notion of impending doom. He didn't have a death wish. But this was just this practical understanding that with the gospel comes the potential for persecution. Jesus said the same thing in the parable of the soil when he said the second soil, people receive the word, they're really happy about it in the beginning, instant bloom but instant flay because, uh, instant, yeah, instant bloom and then instant away because the persecution and the pressure that comes with the gospel. So then Paul's experience teaches him that, that this gospel thing can be very, very difficult. When you are actually obeying Jesus Christ, there could be trouble. And Jesus warned his followers that because of him, there would be trouble. And the Corinthian church are followers of Christ, hence the crisis. So think with me just for a minute as we sit in the comfort of a morning like this, you know, our biggest problem would be who's going to go home and cook lunch and who's going to clean the house. 
I want you to remember that Nero would be the emperor around this time. And when Nero ruled Rome, which would include Corinth, he absolutely hated Christians. Nero had an order that he would take the animal skins of dead animals, show them to alive Christians. He would take those alive Christians with those dead animal skins shown to them and then take those Christians, throw them into the arena with the lions. And the lions, smelling the animal content, would just rip open the skin and lay waste to the Christian inside. And the Roman crowds would go wild. And people would say, did you see that? Wow, look at that. See, that's their crisis. Well, why are they being treated that way? You ready? Because they believe that Jesus Christ is the only Son of God, that He's the second person in the Trinity, that He's the only way to heaven, that because of His death, we can have forgiveness of sin. And He's going to return to judge all humanity. That's why. You mean just like all of us now? Yeah, hopefully, just like all of us now. And by the way, the historical record tells us, and the Fox's Book of Martyrs tells us, that one of the first uh, martyrs for Christianity outside the Bible context of Stephen was a man named Erastus. You can read about him in Romans 16, 23, and he was from Corinth. So the crisis could be that. But it could also be, and you have to think with me again, just the whole state of affairs between the first and second coming of Jesus. When Jesus steps onto the scene of human history, what happens? Uh, Go read the gospel. What is the Christmas story? Blood everywhere. Baby's dying. Mom and dad on the run. Wasn't very pretty. And then Jesus' ministry, difficult. His cross, horrible. His ascension, right? Conversions, a few days later, yes. But crisis, nonetheless. And Jesus himself made this potential crisis very plain. John 15, 20. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me... They will persecute you also. In other words, there is a sense that the whole church, if you would, is in a crisis mode. The whole church. So the church, our brothers and sisters in Iraq and Yemen and Egypt and China and Peru and other places. The whole church is in crisis. So the whole church, West Cohasset included, has to try to figure out how we live in that context, even though right now it would seem like we're not in crisis. Why? Because we're united in body and spirit to the whole church. So this is why Paul says what he says. Okay, you want to get married or you want to stay single? Should you? Shouldn't you? This is his context. The gospel and its implications are a war zone. Maybe not right now, right here, but somewhere, a war zone. So imagine you had a son or daughter who had a, was headed off to war. And they're dating someone and they love each other and they're serious. Do you tell them to get married? Or do you advise them not to marry before they leave? You see, that's what Paul is saying. Because chances more, are more than even they will not return from the crisis in which they go into. Therefore, because of the crisis, singleness might be, might be the way to go. Second phrase, which provides us a context for us, is in verse 29. And Paul writes, what I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. 
Okay, so here we are again. What is Paul saying when he's saying the time is short? Is he referring to what James wrote? Remember what James said? That life is very brief like the falling of a leaf. It's a vapor appearing for a moment and then it's gone. Is it referring to what Jesus said? Right? Jesus said. In fact, let me just read what Jesus said. Be on your guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come, the end. Therefore, keep watch. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Be ready. Paul would often use the return of Jesus Christ as a motivation, specifically in 1 Thessalonians in the church in Philippi, Philippians. He would tell them, guys, Jesus is coming, so get on track with evangelism. Jesus is coming. You don't know when he's going to return. Jesus is coming. Get on track. 1 John 2, 28, dear children, continue in him so that when Christ appears, you will be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. So that could be it. Time is short. So again, we're back to this idea. We might not know exact circumstance, but there is a principle that we need to follow. And here it is. The word for time that Paul uses is karios in the Greek. He used it in Ephesians 5, urging the Christians to make the most of every opportunity. Buy up the time. Don't waste your time. And therefore, and listen carefully, what Paul is saying is that because time is short, verse 29, the way in which a Christian makes all their decisions as a Christian, whether single or married must be influenced by that time frame. Now, we do the same thing. When someone says, hey, do you want to go to this place? We say to ourselves, well, how much time do we have? Or we might ask them, how much time will it take? So time becomes a major factor in all our decision-making. Therefore, in the exact same way, Paul says, because time is short, verse 29, it is a factor in whether you should marry or you should not marry. So there is a crisis, verse 26, and that has to influence us. And time is short, verse 29, and none of us know the day in which our lives will end, nor Christ will return, and there's a work for Jesus we must do. And so you're going to need to think through that framework. Third phrase, which helps us understand the context here, is the last sentence in verse 31. For this world in its present form is passing away. And the word that Paul uses, translated form, is the word schema. And what he means is they're the scheme, the arrangements of this world, this world system, the manner of life is fading out. It's on the wane. The worldly arrangements, all its prospects, all its joys and pleasures decaying. Listen to your Bible, 1 John 2, 15 and following. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of what one has and does, does not come from the Father, but from the world. Then verse 17, the world and its desires pass away. Therefore, if we're prepared to say this morning that we are Bible-believing Christians, it would seem to me like such a foolish investment to throw ourselves into what is swiftly a crumbling system. The world, its plans, its schemes, its priorities are all crumbling. The world is on its way out. What a poor, foolish investor you are if you throw yourself into that which is yielding A zero-sum game. 
Actually, it's less than a zero-sum game. Therefore, since the world was on its way out, God's kingdom, eternity, is the more pressing matter when you decide matters of time. That's what Paul's trying to say. So when you introduce eternity into matters of time and explicitly whether you should be get married or you should not get married, when you allow eternity to set the priorities in these things, then it will absolutely revolutionize the way we decide these things. You see, eternity is the key. So I want to say a couple of things. One, let's not try to be better than the Bible. I mean, if you look at our current context, whether you're a Christian or not Christian, uh, Christian marriages still are on the 50% end of, of divorce. One out of every two. So we can't speak to this, you know, like with such authority, like we got the thing going on. What we need to do is listen to Paul and be careful and enter into those arrangements carefully. And I think that's why we would struggle with these instructions. Because we've been using the wrong context. We've been trying to interpret uh, 1 Corinthians 7 within our context and with a viewpoint of uh, family values or from the viewpoint that the family is everything or my marriage is the most important thing or my wife is the most important thing or my husband is the most important thing or my children are the most important thing. They are not the most important thing. And then when we do that, we miss all the contextual keys. There is a crisis. Time is short. And the world and its desires are all passing away. And loved ones, that was true then in century one. And that is true now in century 21. As soon as the gospel was preached, there is a crisis. There's only two ways to live. In Christ or not in Christ. Choose now. Salvation is free, yes. But it will cost you everything. Before the time comes when it's too late. And none of us know when that is. Choose Jesus. Okay, time is short. None of us know what tomorrow, tomorrow will hold. And because time is short, get on with the business of your master. Get on with it. And this world system is passing away. So why throw yourself into something that has no future? Right? Why throw yourself into this world system that has no future? Now, I read an article uh, from the April 4th edition of the Washington Post that had the title, Tech Titans, Latest Project, Defy Death. And this is the subtitle. For centuries, explorers have searched for the fountain of youth. Today's billionaires believe they can create it using technology and data. And so I'm going to quote from a guy named Larry Ellison. He's Oracle founder. I believe he's a CEO. He gave $430 million to anti-aging, anti-death research. And this is what he was quoted as saying. Death has never made any sense to me. How can a person be there and then just vanish? Just not be there? Now you compare that to the gospel. There's nothing stable or lasting in this world. Nothing. Why is that? Well, it's because of sin. And only because of Christ, there's a new heaven and a new earth and a new scheme of things which are coming and are forever. Pick. Pick. Now. Now, we'll make much more application of this, Lord willing, next week. But for now, I want you to understand that this connection between singleness and, and getting married by Paul has to do with verse 26, the present crisis. Verse 29, the brevity of life. And then verse 31, this world in its present form, including marriage, is passing away. And there's nothing anyone can do to stop it. Now, before we go on, I, I want you to ask the question. I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to answer this in your head. 
those of you who have gone through premarital counseling, was this kind of thing ever said? My guess is that it was more than likely not. Now, please, let's not try to be better than the Bible. We're still one and two divorce situation. Don't you think, just on a practical level, if people got this advice, maybe, under God, maybe some would not have connected. And then that whole horrible situation would have never happened. This in Paul is a sacred common sense, which is pragmatically involved in advancing the glory of Christ throughout the world. So any attempt to be better than the Bible eventually will fall flat on its face. And it has. Second point. First point, context. We got that. Now his concern. Now if you're listening and you've been reading some of the scriptures there, Paul would come off, I bet, to a modern reader who's ever A, never heard this preached, or B, never did some kind of research to find out what Paul was trying to say. I bet you Paul would come off as the president of the He-Man, a woman's haters club. Right? First glance, he'd have to say that. But if you understand the context, then it begins to make a bit more sense. Paul is not doing everything he can to stop marriages. You know, he might have had a bad one and everybody's going to have to pay. You know, that's not Paul. What he's doing is writing for their protection and, their, and for their devotion. Look at verse 35. Their protection. I'm saying this for your own good. Not to restrict you. And the word that Paul uses for restrict is the word brokos, which would be like a slipknot to be put over a beast to restrict their movement. So what Paul is saying is saying, listen, I have no intention of restraining your liberty if you want to marry. Because if you want to marry, fine. That's fine. But I still want to protect you. Verse 28, because those who marry will face many troubles. The word is uh, flipsis. Pressures. <laughs> tribulation. In your life. Because of your marriage. And then verse 32. So I want you to be free from concern. Now loved ones. Paul's just being honest. The normal effective Christian life. Is not always a happy childhood. Dream wedding. Dream career. Cozy retirement for everyone. That is a rational nonsense. Untrue to biblical realities. Untrue to world realities. And the normal Christian marriage. Does have its fill of trouble. This is one of the reasons why I like images, but then I don't like images, right? Because you get a couple, and just the image, and they're like, and you know, we don't know, before they went, they could have been at each other's throats. And just for the picture, for a moment, they were like, we don't know. So the idea of a fairy tale wedding and a fairy tale lives and seeing everything through rose-tinted glasses might be more harmful to the marriage than pornography. Now, why do I say that? Because it raises up all those wrong expectations of what a Christian marriage is. The normal, effective, married person's Christian life will have its fill of troubles. And then add on top of that the troubles of marriage. Because if I'm a Christian, and I go public, and I'm evangelistic as I should be, then I will face from time to time persecution. I will face uh, discrimination, deprivation, and potential imprisonment as millions of our brothers and sisters around the world face every day. And so I imagine that it would be much, much easier if I didn't have to worry about my wife and I didn't have to worry about my kids in that context. 
So he's writing for their concern. But having said all that, he still says the point. Verse 28. If you do marry, you haven't sinned. So Paul never reaches a conclusion that you shouldn't marry. He says, look, just, I just want you to think this through. Marriage adds to your anxieties. And marriage adds to your distractions. So one of the things I did this week was I googled some songs about marriage. <laughs> and I found two. This is from Etta James. It has the line. You ready? Wait, wait. Stop the wedding. Don't do it. And, and <laughs> you should Google that song because she's like singing with all her heart. Wait, wait. <laughs> and then this is the replacements. This would have been like, I guess in the 80s maybe, maybe late 70s. You're getting married? You're getting married? Oh, no. <laughs> so, so let's say you're married. Okay, super, I'm married. Did you feel that when I said that? <laughs> there's a lot of trouble and there's a lot of concern inherent in marriage. And for 24 years now, I've never publicly or privately complained about my wife to anyone. But today, that's going to change. <laughs> If I had something to complain about. <laughs> Just think with me for a moment. If, if you're single, you can go home and that's your choice. You might want to go out. That's your choice. You, you'll have nobody to answer to and you can do what you want. So if you want to go to the coffee house, go to the coffee house. If you want to sip and stay for a long time, sip and stay for a long time. That's your choice. You have no one to answer to. You're single. If you're married... Let's say you happen to be the father of one or two or four. Number one, you better go home. Number two, if you do decide to go to the coffee house, you better bring something back for everyone. <laughs> and as soon as you start bringing something back, you know, treats, whatever, then what happens? I mean, you know this is the case. How much do they have? They got more than I did. They got to pick first. You always do that, Dad. Why did they get to pick? Why didn't you bring anything with sprinkles on it, Dad? We never get sprinkles. They get sprinkles. And then that's not even the start of it. Then your wife looks at you, right? And she looks at you and says, what did you do? Everything was fine before you came in and you come in all happy and you bring this into our home. You know, go back and start all over again. Go back, wait 30 seconds and then come back in and put all that stuff away. So single people, from where I stand, the single life doesn't look that bad. So Paul tells them, I, here's my context, it's clear. My concern is that you'll be protected, protected from trouble, protected from distractions, protected from concerns that are inherent in marriage, not because of the pragmatics of this, not because you just you know, want to be a happy single like I've said in the story, but again, verse 35, so that you may have undivided devotion to the Lord and to his kingdom. So he wants to protect them, but also he's concerned about their devotion. Again, verse 35, that you may live in a right way. So what Paul is saying, there is a proper way to live for the single and a proper way to live for the married. Well, what is that? Well, this is what Paul says. I want you to live in an, in an unhindered devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the right way. An unhindered devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. An unhindered devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this quote. It's one thing to believe in Christ. 
It's quite another to live as if he's, if he's, as if, excuse me, as if he's the most important thing in your life. Again, it's one thing to believe in Christ. It's quite another to live as if he's the most important thing in your life. Now, do you know who said that? Christopher Hitchens. He's an atheist. He's just thinking things through. If all this stuff about Jesus is true, then holy moly, you better live as if he he is the most important thing in your life. In a time of crisis, in time that's short, in a world that's passing away, Paul says, my pressing concern for you is you just sell it out for Jesus Christ. And you see, if you understand that context, and then if you understand Paul's concern, then all this begins to make some sense. He wants men and women, single or married, he wants them in service to Jesus without any distractions, and the single person has a head start. And that's what he's saying. This takes us then to our final point. We won't be long on this. Verses 29b through 31. We won't fully get to this, but the content of instruction is essentially this. Since time is short, that's what he says there in 29b, right? From now on, it's like almost kid language, right? From now on, time is short, you know that now. So from now on, in light of this, I want to tell you to have an eternal viewpoint on everything in your life. And then notice what he says there, verse 29b, eternity in your relationships. From now on, those who have wise wives should live as if they do not. Now, we need to know what that means, and we'll know all, Lord willing, next time with more fullness. But for now, what he's saying is eternity affects marriage, and eternity affects sexuality and sex and so on. And eternity affects death and emotions. Look at verse 30, those who mourn as if they did not. And eternity affects happiness. Those who are happy as if they were not. And eternity affects our purchases and our possessions. Again, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. And eternity affects our culture and our behavior in that culture. Verse 31. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. In other words, that you don't try to make full use of the world. You don't try to get everything out of the world. You do make full use of Jesus. But you do not make full use of the world. That's his t-shirts. You know, let's say, uh, what is it? Uh, the, my sports are my life. Or music is my life. Or, or whatever is my life. No, Jesus is our life. That's what Paul's saying. You can be in the world, but don't let the world have you. And you see, the people say the Bible's relevant. No, it is extremely re- relevant. It's just too honest. It's too honest. Because what Paul is saying in this instruction from God, recorded to us, in these verses in chapter 7, is that eternity is supposed to touch the most basic part of our lives. Marriage, sex, death, happiness, things, culture, behavior. Those are the ebb and flow of life things. And eternity is supposed to touch it. So we need to go. Let me ask you a question. This past week, be honest, everything that made you happy, everything that made you content, and satisfied and fulfilled? Did it have to do with the things of earth? Or did it have to do with the things of heaven? Right? Did it have to do with the things of earth which are passing away? Or the things of heaven which are not? When you got all jazzed up this past week, whatever it was, was it because of earth? Or heaven?
And for those of us who are prepared to be honest, do we see how earthbound and how now oriented we are? So let me ask you one last question. Did eternity, did heaven enter into our minds once last week? Because when eternity and heaven enters into our mind, then everything on this earth will be ordered properly. In actual fact, it will be in its proper order. And that's why Paul says what he says. Thank you for your attention. We have more to do, Lord willing, next time. And so let's bow together and pray. Our gracious God and Father, how we give glory to your name for just the reasonableness of these verses. They, they come to us, maybe, Father, as unusual. They come to us as maybe, um, maybe even hurtful. I'm not sure. But they come to us by your Spirit, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit to write what he wrote. And so we pray that we would have a sensible understanding of these things, that we won't be too quick to rebel against these truths, that we would think things through and think widely. We wouldn't just think about our context, but think about our brothers and sisters around the world who have to face these choices in the most horrific of circumstances right now. And my mind always goes to a family, some place probably in the Middle East, and the wife is just so tired of suffering so long for Jesus. And she looks at her husband and she looks at her kids and, and she's like, how long, oh Lord, how long? Should we ever have done this? Should we ever have gone this route? Is Jesus really Christ? So Father, help us to be careful then if we'd be too quick to judge your word. May the love of God then and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours, both now and forevermore. Amen.